All right, let's get after it. If you have a Bible, Acts chapter 10 is where we'll be this morning. Acts chapter 10, let's get those pages flipping. We uh, have gone through the book of Acts at a slow pace so far. And so we've spent 16 Sundays going through nine chapters. And we're going to go through two whole chapters this morning. So we're changing pace just a bit. Uh, so we'll be doing things a little bit different. So I hope you haven't gotten comfortable with the way we've been doing things. Um, what we'll do is we'll read a big chunk and then we'll talk for a bit and we'll read a big chunk and talk for a bit. And hopefully by God's grace, we'll get through both of these chapters here this morning, Acts 10 and 11. Um, when I was saved as a high schooler, uh, Jesus found me in a kind of broken and confused and real messy kind of situation. And so I had had some health problems and, and things had just kind of spiraled out of control for me. And, and um, I started reading the book of Matthew. I was an insomniac and so I wasn't sleeping. And one night in the middle of the summer, right before my senior year in high school, I started reading through the book of Matthew. Uh, and I read through Matthew, got to the end, and was really struck by Jesus' last words. You remember them in the Gospel of Matthew. Um, as he's resurrected, he comes to the disciples and says, All authority in heaven and on earth has been given to me. Go, therefore, and make disciples. And I remember thinking when I got to the, the end of Matthew that I believed. I mean, I just kind of, for whatever reason, thought that this was true. This had really happened. He had said the things he said. He'd done the things that the scriptures had said he'd done. He died for our sins, and then he, he rose again. And that what he said at the end of Matthew was, was true. Right now in heaven, all authority, all power. He's the king. He reigns. And now he's working through his church. And I remember wondering, and really having no firm answers, what does that mean for me? I mean, how does, how's that going to work out in my life? Jesus' victory, his reign, what he's doing now through the church. What does that mean? How does that apply for a kid who has a, a crippling case of, of panic disorder? For a kid who's been suicidal for the past three months, who just kind of wants to give up? What does that mean for a kid who has... Uh, abandoned most of his relationship with friends and, and whose relationship with his family is in the gutter. I mean, this messy, confusing kind of situation, if I come to the conclusion, I think this is true, what does that mean? How do I get out of here? I mean, how does that even apply? How does he relate to me in that situation? And on that night, I started a long and messy and confusing journey that's lasted up to this day, this journey of trying to figure out what does it mean to worship God? What does it mean to acknowledge these truths that we sing about and that we read in the scriptures and then to, to live in a way that reflects that? And that's, that's one of the things we try to do together as a community. I, I don't, and, and usually don't, and, and probably won't in the future, come to you on a Sunday morning trying to prove to you certain things. And so you don't, I mean, you don't hear a lot of apologetic kind of stuff from me. I don't, I don't try to prove to you that Jesus has resurrected. I don't try to prove to you um, that he's God and, and that these certain things have happened. Instead, I come from the assumption, say they are true, what do they mean? Say you found yourself in a place where the Spirit's moved in your heart, where you say, I believe that. You hear about Jesus dying and resurrecting. Something in your heart stirs. You hear about him reigning and having authority and working through the church. And something in your, your heart and your mind and your soul, grasped by the Holy Spirit, agrees with that, resonates with that. What does that mean? How does that work itself out, flush itself out in our lives? In the often messy situations that we get ourselves in. In the confusing world and context that we live in. With the failures and the falling down that we often participate in. When we, we're, we're going through the book of Acts here, and, and I kind of think that might be one way to view the early church's struggle and the early church's journey. They're, they're, they're working out all these different implications of what it means that Jesus is Lord. 
So from the assumption that he has died, he has risen again, he has given us his spirit, now what does this mean? What does this mean when we're in this town? What does this mean when we're talking to this person? What does this mean when we're reading this scripture? What does it mean when we're worshiping here? What are the implications of the truths that we have discovered through the spirit? And what we'll find this morning in our text in these two chapters is the church is going to work out one of the most drastic conclusions it's come to. I mean, it changed the entire landscape of Christian history. What happens here in the church, as again, they're struggling to grasp, grasp all the implications of what it means that Jesus died and raised again for the salvation of his world. And so, so we'll follow along the early church this morning um, and maybe work out some implications of our own. So we'll pick up in Acts chapter 10 and verse 1. Again, we'll read a little bit, talk, and we'll read. All right, he says this. At Caesarea, there's a man named Cornelius, a centurion of what was known as the Italian cohort. A devout man who feared God with all of his household, and gave alms generously to the people, and prayed continually to God. About the ninth hour of the day, he saw clearly in a vision an angel of God come in and say to him, Cornelius. And he stared at him in terror and said, What is it, Lord? And he said to him, Your prayers and your alms have ascended as a memorial before God. And now send men to Joppa and bring one Simon, who is called Peter. He is lodging with one Simon a tanner, whose house is by the sea. When the angel who spoke to him had departed, he called two of his servants and a devout soldier from among those who attended him. And having related everything to them, he sent them to Joppa. Okay, you'll remember Peter has just finished these two miraculous healings. Um, he's staying in Joppa uh, with Simon the Tanner. And now we meet a guy named Cornelius. Now I want to point out a few things to you about this scene and then we'll move on. Um, there's a backdrop for what's about to happen that Luke is preparing us with. Okay, Notice the Roman... In Greek, but primarily Roman background being painted here. First, Cornelius lives in Caesarea. Does this name sound like anything to you? Can you see kind of a, a root there? This was a city named after Caesar. This is one of his prized kind of possessions. This was Caesar's city, Caesar's town. And so this is a very interesting backdrop for some of the claims that might be made about Jesus. That might rival claims that Caesar commonly said about himself. So Cornelius is in Caesar, but, but not only is he just in, C, uh, in Caesarea, but Cornelius is a centurion um, of the Italian cohort. So not only was his kind of military group from Italy, associated with the Roman emperor at the heart there, the core, he was also a commander. He was a pie, okay? And that's what it would have meant to be a centurion. He would have been like a, a military officer. He would have had a group of soldiers under his control. And so Cornelius in Caesarea, a centurion, knows a whole lot about what it means to be a Roman and what it means to serve Caesar. You see, Romans had built, the Romans, the Roman Empire, had built this massive, massive empire. And they controlled all types of different people groups. And the way they controlled them was with a brute military force. Ruthless, emotionless, capable of wiping out cities at a time. And wiping the blood off the hands and saying, this is what happens when you mess with Caesar. When you mess with the king. So notice, just this backdrop he's starting to paint, okay? Cornelius is a man who knows very much about claims to kingship and loyalty and allegiance and what it means to serve and have an empire. Have someone who's working out his plan in creation. So we keep reading. Obviously, Cornelius gets this vision says, hey, you need to go talk to Peter. So now we're with Peter. Verse 9. The next day, as they were on their journey and approaching the city, Peter went up on the housetop about the sixth hour to pray. 
And he became hungry and wanted something to eat, but while they were preparing it, he fell into a trance and saw the heavens open and something like a great sheet descending, being let down by its four corners upon the earth. In it were all kinds of animals and reptiles and birds of the air. And there came a voice to him, Rise, Peter, kill, and eat. But Peter said, By no means, Lord, for I have never eaten anything that is common or unclean. And the voice of God came to him again a second time. He said, Don't backtalk me, I'm God. No, what God has made clean, do not call common. This happened three times, and the thing was taken up at once to heaven. Now, while Peter was inwardly perplexed as to what this vision that he had seen might mean, behold, the men who were sent by Cornelius, having made inquiry for Simon's house, stood at the gate and called out to ask whether Simon, who was called Peter, was lodging there. And while Peter was pondering the vision, the Spirit said to him, Behold, three men are looking for you. Rise and go down and accompany them without hesitation, for I have sent them. And Peter went down to the men and said, I am the one you are looking for. What is the reason for your coming? And they said, Cornelius, the centurion, an upright and God-fearing man, who is well spoken of by the whole Jewish nation, was directed by a holy angel to send for you to come to his house to hear what you have to say. So he invited them to be his guests. Okay, we get the second kind of vision here. Peter, while Cornelius has his stuff happening, he sends his group to go find Peter. Peter has a vision. In his vision, there's this big sheet that comes down with all these different animals on it that he as a Jew would not have been allowed to eat. And here's a voice, the voice of the Lord saying, Peter, kill them. Eat these animals. Peter, who is no stranger to, to talking back to God, right? He's no stranger <laughs> to saying, I don't think you've got this one quite right. I'll take it from here. Says, no, I'm not going to do that. I think Peter oftentimes thinks he's being tricked by God. This is a trick question. I got this. No, I'm not going to eat this. Never once come into my mouth. God says, no, no, no. You understand. Distinctions that we used to have are now being broken down. Get up. Eat the animals. And Peter wakes up and he's like, what is happening here? And he's thinking through what this means, what this might mean for his life. Should I start eating fish? What is this? How does this play out? And all of a sudden, some people show up and say, hey, there's this Roman centurion who wants to talk to you. And Peter decides to go with them. Now, we've got to understand, there's another backdrop Luke's starting to paint here. We have the backdrop of Caesar, which we'll see play out some more. Now we have the backdrop of a, a, a hostility between Jews and Gentiles. The Jewish people and the Gentile people were separated by this really large divide that's hard for us to really grasp our minds around, I think. The Jewish people um, had certain things about them that they were commanded by the Lord um, and by tradition that separated them from Gentiles, primarily circumcision and food taboos. They weren't allowed to eat certain types of food, and this kept them far apart from Gentiles. And this was originally a way of, of, of marking the boundary between God's people and those who weren't God's people and keeping some ritual purity. But over time, the Jewish people decided to use this and to see this as God's favoritism towards them. So in the Old Testament, God had always told them, hey, I'm going to bless you to be a blessing. And the prophets had talked about a day when, when the Gentiles would come to hear and worship Israel's God. But the Jewish people had taken this boundary God had set up and run with it. And as Groups and people normally do use God's blessing as a way of saying God favors us. God likes us more than you. Groups of people, again, this is a very common thing. You see this all the time. When they are separated, start to develop hostility and suspicion toward each other. 
and the boundary gets deeper and deeper and deeper, and the wall gets higher and higher and higher and higher. And by the time we're in the first century, the distance between Jews and Gentiles was great. And there was suspicion and hostility on both sides. So interestingly enough, one of the claims that some Jewish people said about Gentiles for why they wouldn't even go into a Gentile house is this. Ready for it? They would say that Gentiles forced their wives to have abortions and then buried the dead fetuses under the floorboards of their house. Now, it's going to be November really soon, and we're going to have an election. And when you hear Democrats talking about Republicans, and Republicans talking about Democrats, know that we didn't invent hyperbole, okay? (laughs) This has been a practice that's been around for a while. So, I don't know, maybe there is some kind of real story that that claim comes from, But I'm guessing that you can't assume that if someone's a Gentile, they've hidden dead fetuses under their floorboard, okay? I don't think that's a common thing for the Gentiles. But because of this separation, this suspicion, this hostility, the Jewish people saw in the Gentiles all that was wrong with the world and could not imagine God coming to them and offering them salvation and forgiveness. These are the people on the outside. We don't even talk to them. We don't eat with them. Why? They kill babies and put them under their floorboards. Everything you can imagine that could be wrong with the world is on this group. They are not us. Now, the Gentiles had their fair share of suspicions about the Jewish people as well. There's some hostility going that way. The Jewish people wouldn't participate in the social life, particularly in the first century in the Greco-Roman world. And so they wouldn't go to the parties. They wouldn't go um, to the gymnasium even. They wouldn't go um, worship and, and do business at the pagan temples. Romans actually, or or the the Gentiles had a claim about the Jewish people that they were robbers of pagan temples. Perhaps, again, a Jewish person had robbed a pagan temple, maybe because they didn't believe in the pagan divinities, so they thought no one really owned this, so we might as well take it, right? But again, probably not on a whole, all Jewish people just went around stealing stuff. But that was the claim, that was the division and the hostility that separated these two groups. And Romans saw the fate of their community and the fate of their empire and their towns and their cities as directly related to how the gods were treating them and gods were viewing them. And so that's why you worship the gods. I mean, you would worship them, give them gifts, give them money, give them food. Why should they be nice to you? They protect you. They protect your land. They protect your country. They give you food and rain. They give you crops. The Jewish people, though, paid no homage to these gods. So imagine who gets blamed when there's a famine. When there's an earthquake, when things don't start going well, we've been working really hard to get these gods on our side. These people haven't. Two groups, far apart. One group claiming to be God's favorites. And we're starting to see this boundary divided. We're starting to see God saying what once was a distinction, what once you called unclean or common, will no longer be unclean or common. So we keep reading. Verse 23, he invited them to be his guests. The next day he rose and went away with them. And some of the brothers from Joppa accompanied him. And on the following day they entered Caesarea. Cornelius was expecting them and called together his relatives and close friends. When Peter entered, Cornelius met him and fell down on his feet and worshipped him. But Peter lifted him up, saying, Stand up, I too am a man. It's interesting here. This shows us how much Cornelius was removed from the Jewish way of thinking and Jewish way of life. We know Cornelius, Luke paints him here as a pretty good guy. He gave money to charity. He prayed. The Jewish people seemed to like him. Um, But Cornelius struggled with this creature-creature divide that Jewish people didn't struggle with. Jewish people had a very firm line between what was creator and what was creature. And you don't worship creature. 
You don't worship man. The Greeks and the Romans didn't have this fine of a distinction. In fact, Cornelius probably would have been worshiping the emperor and the army. That's one of the things you did. You made sacrifices. You worshiped. And so Cornelius goes to worship Peter. And Peter goes, oh, no, 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 no. You don't understand. We worship the God. I'm a man. It's not how we do it. So you see, again, Cornelius is far removed from this kind of way of thinking. But he does understand worship. He understands kings. He understands peace. Now, so, so Peter lifts him up, verse 27. As he talked with them, he went in and found any persons gathered. He said to them, You yourselves know how unlawful it is for a Jew to associate with or to visit anyone of another nation. But God has shown me that I should not call any person common or unclean. So when I was sent for, I came without objection. I asked them why you sent for me. So again, now we see the other backdrop. Cornelius bows down. And then Peter says, hey, this is really against the law for me to be here right now. Peter knows he's going to be in trouble for this. And we'll see. He, he gets in trouble pretty quickly. You have to wonder if Peter almost, if this like Peter's edgy friend. I don't know if you have that friend who's like out there and you're like, yeah, I'm cool. Look at that guy. He's my friend. I have a tattoo and I used to own a snake, which is like the most edgy things about me. Um, they're pretty cool. Um, but, but Peter comes to Cornelius' house and like, hey, I'm not supposed to be here right now. I'm not supposed to be associated with you. Can I check your floorboards? Okay. <laughs> Cornelius says, "Why have you?" Or Peter asks, "Why? Why have you sent for me?" It's funny here because you almost have this game. Like I don't know if you ever called someone, and you're like, "Hey, what's up?" And they're like, "I don't know. You called me, right?" Well, Peter and Cornelius have this kind of exchange here. So Peter goes, "Why? Why did you send for me?" And Cornelius said, four days ago, about this hour, I was praying in my house at the ninth hour, and behold, a man stood before me in bright clothing and said." Cornelius, your prayer has been heard. Your alms have been remembered before God. Send therefore to Joppa and ask for Simon, who's called Peter. He's lodging in the house of Simon by the, uh, the tanner by the sea. So I sent for you at once, and you've been kind enough to come. Now, therefore, we are all here in the presence of God to hear all that you've been commanded by the Lord. Peter goes, why did you send me? And Cornelius goes, I don't know. You tell me. <laughs> what do you have to tell me? Okay. Now, it's worth pointing out, this is a great audience for a preacher. This is an ideal audience. Not always do you have ideal audiences, but... Cornelius sits down and goes, we want to hear what you have to tell us about God. And so now Peter gives him the message. Verse 34. I actually blocked this whole section out. We're going to focus in here. This is, there's so much meat here, okay? So we'll pick it up in verse 34. Peter opened his mouth and said, Truly I understand that God shows no partiality. But in every nation, anyone who fears him and does what is right is acceptable to him. So Peter's starting to see this universal mission. There's no distinction. As for the word he sent to Israel, preaching good news of peace through Jesus Christ, he is Lord of all. Now, you might miss it. In verse 36 here, the message he brings to Cornelius is overwhelmingly political in its message, in its tone, in the words that it uses. These are words used very commonly about Caesar, whom Cornelius serves and works for, who's very familiar with. So Caesar, the king, when he would come to reign or when he had a victory, he would send out news, good news, the gospel. And Caesar claimed to bring peace to the world. Pax Romana. Cornelius knew all about good news of peace. But Peter had a different good news of peace. One that would rival that claim or, in fact, make it so that that claim was actually rivaling his claim. Because I have good news of peace. But it's a, different, it's a different kind of peace. It's a different kind of good news. Even Roman historians in the first century understood that Rome's kind of peace was a little questionable. 
peace at what cost? At dominating all people groups, of having everyone in fear of you, of having blood all over the land? Jesus' peace is a much different kind of peace. It's a crucifixion type of peace. It's a service type of peace. It's a love your enemy type of peace. But regardless, Peter comes up and says, here's the message. There's good news of peace through Jesus. Jesus, who he says, is the Lord of all. Again, a claim that the kings, the Caesars would make. We have it ascribed to Nero and Domitian and emperor after emperor. Not just Lord, Lord of everything. Lord of all there is. Universal lordship. I am king. I am in control. And your loyalty, your obedience, your allegiance, your trust should lie in me. Peter comes to Cornelius and says, Nope. Everything you kind of already have a framework for by being in the the army, by, by knowing Caesar and his operations, now you need to see in Jesus. The relationship between Jesus and Caesar, according to the New Testament, and you see it here, is one of reality and parody. One is the true thing, the true peace, the true good news, the true king, the true Lord. And the other is almost this comical distortion of it. And in fact, those Christians subverted the entire power system of the Roman, the Roman government, the Roman political system. And they said, it's not that Jesus is competing with Caesar. It's that Caesar's been competing with Jesus the whole time and continues to compete with them, but will never quite match up. And Peter comes to Cornelius and says, Jesus is Lord. That's the message. He's the king. All your allegiance, all your loyalty, all your obedience, your entire life now needs to be in relationship to him. So he continues on. He says, You yourselves know what happened throughout all Judea, beginning from Galilee, after the baptism that John proclaimed, how God anointed Jesus of Nazareth with the Holy Spirit and with power. He went about doing good and healing all who were oppressed by the devil, for God was with him. This is Jesus' ministry. This is what he's come to do as Lord. He's come to get rid of the evil powers that oppress humanity. The mess of a state that creation has found itself in. And sin and death, enslaved, helpless, and fear. He comes and he drives back throughout his ministry and dies and raises again, saying, I've done it, I've accomplished it. Good news. Those who are oppressed are no longer. I'm redeeming, I'm rescuing the world. And we are witnesses of what he did both in the country of the Jews and in Jerusalem. They put him to death by hanging him on a tree, but God raised him on the third day and made him to appear, not to all people, but to us who had been chosen by God as witnesses, who are or ate and drank with him after he rose from the dead. And he commanded us to preach to the people and to testify that he is the one appointed by God to be the judge of the living and the dead. He's the ultimate authority. He's whom your actions and your lives need to be accountable towards. To him, all the prophets bear witness that everyone who believes in him receives forgiveness of sins through his name. Now watch it. While Peter was saying these things, the Holy Spirit falls on all who heard the word. The Spirit starts to shower them. Something weird and amazing starts to happen. And the believers from among the circumcised who had come with Peter were amazed. The gift of the Holy Spirit was poured out even on the Gentiles. And they weren't circumcised. And they were still eating unclean foods. And we still were kind of suspicious about their floorboards. But the Spirit fills them. 
They were hearing them speak in tongues and extolling God. And Peter declared, can anyone withhold water for baptizing these people who received the Holy Spirit just as we have? And he commanded them to be baptized in the name of Jesus Christ. And they asked him to remain for some days. So the Spirit comes on the Gentiles. Salvation is now offered to them. The church here makes a fork in the road, takes a turn that will change the course of history with the work done through Jesus and through the Spirit now being available to Gentiles as they are, without them becoming Jews. So Cornelius meets with Christ and is filled with the Holy Spirit. Now this is not just tolerance for tolerance's sake, as if all of the Gentile worldviews and ideologies and assumptions and lifestyles were now just accepted by God. No, just as the Jews did, now Gentiles get to come meet Jesus and be healed and transformed and changed and find out what true obedience and true life is like. But this big dividing wall is torn down when Peter says, I've, I've understand that God shows no partiality. All groups stand equal before him, and the offer of salvation goes out to them. We might say that God takes this big wall of hostility between the Jewish people and the Gentile people, and he shatters it with the gospel. And throughout the scriptures, this seems to be one of the big purposes of the gospel, of the good news of Jesus, is to take what used to separate people, used to cause wars and violence and hostility and suspicions and economic superiority, and he shatters it and brings them all together in one family who worship the risen one. And you find a new life together. Now we might think there's not this kind of big wall between the Jews and the Gentiles, and, and maybe there's nothing similar to it in our situation. I would perhaps ask you just for a couple seconds to think through all the different labels that you can come up with that separate people today. Racial, ethnic, national, sexual, moral, fashion, skinny jeans, Anti-skinny jeans. People watching our culture have noticed there's an interesting thing happening right now, particularly with the internet. We're starting to go back into this almost tribal form. We're forming tribes again. Even within big groups, you have your tribe. So within Christians in the evangelical West, there are the hipster Christians. And then there are the old-fashioned traditional Christians. And they're both a little suspicious of each other. They both kind of think they've got it right. You have the goths in high school, and you have the, the, the jocks, and, and you have the blacks, and you have the whites, and you have the Hispanics, and you have the Iraqis, and you have the Americans. You have all of these boundaries, and God says, get rid of all of them. The gospel goes out. There's mission available to all. Now, we're going to see two churches in chapter 11, and they're going to respond differently to these facts. So, again, the church is working out what does it mean for Jesus to be Lord. And I think they've hit on it. Well, it means nothing less than our obedience and allegiance, our lives should be defined by him. And also it means all people groups are now invited to the table. And we are not to withhold from anyone. In fact, we're to intentionally go break down those walls. Go find them. Go be with them. Two churches, Jerusalem and Antioch, different reactions, okay? Chapter 11, verse 1. Now the apostles and the brothers who were throughout Judea heard that the Gentiles had also received the word of God. So when Peter went up to Jerusalem, the circumcision party criticized him. The circumcision party. This is an important group. They're a Jewish Christian group, so a small tribe inside the bigger tribe. 
who are going to claim that for Gentiles to receive salvation, they need to get circumcised. Why? They need to be like us. God doesn't meet them where they are. God meets them where we are. So if they have any hope of trying to get this, they need to learn all of our rules, all of our cultural and national rules. The circumcision party is going to plague the early church. It's going to grow and grow and grow. In chapter 15, we'll have a big council called to hash it out with everybody. This is going to be Paul's number one enemy throughout his ministry. You'll see it in Galatians. He goes after these people. He says, do not tell my converts to get circumcised. They don't need to. God meets them as Gentiles. Saves them and transforms them and heals them. But they come back and Peter, as he probably could have guessed, gets criticized a little bit. You did what? With who? <laughs> so Peter offers his response. Much of this is just repetition, um, which is Luke showing us that it's very important. Peter begins and explains to them in this order. I was in the city of Joppa praying. Interesting enough, if you know your Old Testament, Joppa is the city where Jonah went when he was fleeing from Nineveh. Remember, God tells him, go to Nineveh. Those pagans need my word. Jonah goes, no, 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 no. He heads to Joppa, gets on a ship, ends up in a fish. Remember the story, right? Maybe you have to wonder if Peter's like, I've seen this story play out before. I don't think it's going to work to try to resist this. Uh, the, Chris Watson um, sent me a text this week uh, about uh, Asher. Most of y'all know Asher was uh, reading through the book of Jonah one day during just a quiet time of the day. And she was asking him about him, uh, about Jonah. And, and he said, yeah, you know, Jonah didn't want to go tell the people in Needville about the word with God. And, and she's like, Nineveh. But then I was like, you know, people in Needville probably <laughs> the cow tipping. I don't know what they do out there, but... <laughs> So he, he's in the city of Joppa praying. In a trance, I saw a vision, something like a great sheet descending, being let down from heaven by its four corners. And it came down to me. Looking at it closely, I observed animals and beasts and prey and reptiles and birds of the air. And I heard a voice saying to me, Rise, Peter, kill and eat. But I said, By no means, Lord, for nothing common or unclean has ever entered my mouth. But the voice answered a second time, What God has made clean, do not call common. This happened to me three times, and all was drawn up and into heaven again. And behold, at that very moment, three men arrived at the house in which we were, sent to me from Caesarea. And the Spirit told me to go with them, making no distinction. These six brothers also accompanied me. We entered the man's house. He told us how he'd seen the angel stand in his house and say, Send to Joppa and bring Simon, who is called Peter. He'll declare a message by which you will be saved, you and your household. As I began to speak, the Holy Spirit fell on them, just as it had on us at the beginning. And I remembered the word of the Lord, how he said, John baptizes with water, but you'll be baptized with the Holy Spirit. If then God gave the same gift to them as he gave to us when we believed in the Lord Jesus Christ, who was I that I would stand in God's way? When they heard these things, they fell silent and they glorified God, saying, Then to the Gentiles also God has granted repentance that leads to life. Peter's argument wasn't me. Okay? You got a problem. You need to take up with a much bigger authority than this. At every, I resisted. I did the good Jewish thing, right? But there are angels and visions and the Spirit was speaking and all of a sudden he fell on the Gentiles. And I was like, well, if he fell on them like you fell on us, I guess they're going to get baptized. And now I'm here talking to you and I'm really scared about what you're going to think about me. But this is what happened. And the Jerusalem church seems to acknowledge here. And they say, I guess Gentiles have been granted repentance. It leads to life. You might want to not hold your breath, though, for this group of people, okay? They're going to renege on this commitment not too shortly. In fact, Peter himself will find himself on the other side of this argument, interestingly enough. Paul will have to call Peter out for not eating with Gentile Christians. You would think 
maybe it would have gotten through him being kind of the big key of this whole operation. But Peter finds in himself such deep-seated assumptions about the way the world works and the way people relate to each other that it takes him multiple interactions with the Lord before he gets it. The Jerusalem church, particularly the circumcision party, they criticize, they question, they're suspicious. I'm not quite sure about this. I think sometimes you and I, particularly when it comes to different people groups, different tribes, different cultures, we have a paradigm that thinks for us. We have an ideology or an assumption or a worldview that does our arguing for us. So we come to conclusions without ever having to really think about them. Conclusions that are unchallenged, maybe. It's interesting to see this play out. I might give you an example. I don't know if you've seen the Dark Knight movie. If you haven't, you've, I don't know why you've waited this long. It's a great movie. I'm going to spoil it all for you right now. No, I'm not going to do that. But imagine you went and saw Dark Knight with someone from the lowest of low socioeconomic class. Okay? And y'all get out of the movie, and you go, wow, what a great movie. And your friend goes, no, 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 that was an awful movie. The bad guy won. You know, what do you mean the bad guy won? Batman won. He goes, yeah, yeah, Batman, the bad guy, he won. It was awful. You're like, no, 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 you don't understand. Batman's awesome. He flies around, he has no responsibilities, he beats up bad guys. He's the good guy, he's awesome. And the poor person goes, hold up. The guy with all the money in the world, who's so lazy he sleeps through board meetings and dresses up at night to fight a few bad guys, who doesn't actually pour into the system doesn't actually distribute his money, doesn't actually work on real sustainable things that will help the poor, but instead beats one bad guy, leaving the entire system in where surely another bad guy will just fill in his place. That's the good guy to you? And you go, oh, I guess I saw that differently. Why? Well, I mean, we're just operating in different paradigms, different systems of thought, different assumptions that guide our thought. When you see the Batman movie, you're going to be thinking about that, right? <laughs> Peter, Peter has this kind of ingrained, I think we all do. We have to be challenged. I think that's one of the things reading the scriptures does. We saw it last week. We have assumptions about healing and the way the spirit moves. It's going to be challenged on those things. Sometimes it takes more than once. Peter had a hard time thinking these people who were so clearly off bounds, who God would never come to, now are freely invited in. It's hard for him to imagine hard for us to imagine sometimes the Antioch church though which we'll meet next is just this brilliant flash of amazing faithfulness I mean the the best example we have okay so verse 19 now those who were scattered because of the persecution that arose over Stephen traveled as far as Phoenicia and Cyprus and Antioch speaking the word to no one except Jews but there were some of them men of Cyprus and Cyrene who on coming to Antioch spoke to the Hellenist also preaching the Lord Jesus and the hand of the Lord was with them, and a great number who believed turned to the Lord. You can also translate that in 20 as preaching the Lord as Jesus, or preaching Jesus as the Lord. The report of this came to the ears of the church in Jerusalem. They sent Barnabas to Antioch. When he came and saw the grace of God, he was glad, and he exhorted them to remain faithful to the Lord with steadfast purpose. For he was a good man, full of the Holy Spirit and of faith. And a great many people were added to the Lord. So Barnabas went to Tarsus to look for Saul. You remember Saul, persecutor of the church, converted on the road to Damascus, goes to Tarsus to preach to the people he grew up with. Now Barnabas says, hey, could you use your help? When he found him, he brought him to Antioch. And for an entire year, they met with the church and taught a great many people. 
and in Antioch the disciples were first called Christians. Now in these days prophets came down from Jerusalem to Antioch. One of them named Abigail stood up and foretold by the Spirit there would be a great famine all over the world. And this took place in the days of Claudius. So the disciples determined everyone according to his ability, uh, ability to send relief to the brothers living in Judea. And they did so, sending it to the elders by the hand of Barnabas and Saul. Okay, so um, you'll notice there's the MO of the church as people are going out. They're not really speaking to anyone except the Jews. Why? Well, because Jews and Gentiles are separate. Also, Gentiles might not really care about this Jewish claim about the Messiah coming and dying and things of that nature. But there are some unmen named, not named, who decide to talk to the Greeks as well, the Hellenists. And a church starts in Antioch that changes everything in Christian history. Antioch was a melting pot of cultures. It was a huge, bustling city. Very important city for the Roman Empire. You could hear every language imaginable if you stayed around in Antioch for long enough. A church starts in Antioch that will become the other pillar of the early church. You have Jerusalem, you have Antioch. The mission to the Jews, the mission to the Gentiles. And for the next few hundred years, some of the greatest theologians, pastors, Christian leaders come from this church. Why? Because some unnamed guys thought, hey, we might as well share this with the Greeks too. Did you hear about this Jesus guy? He's, he's Lord. They believe. Saul comes. Barnabas had noted Saul was kind of this exceptional leader and said, hey, these people really need some training. Notice again, it's not just tolerance for tolerance's sake. These people in Antioch, from what you might imagine are very different backgrounds, need what we call re-socialization. They need to unlearn a lot of bad habits. Learn what it means to worship the true God. So Saul comes down with Barnabas, spends a year teaching them. The community, learning together what it means to call Jesus Lord, to live like it. In fact, they're first called Christians in Antioch. Probably a derogatory term at first. Christians don't like calling themselves Christians originally. They like disciples, people of God, brothers and sisters. Christian was probably like a political slur, okay? Your follower was that guy we killed as a criminal? Am I getting that right? Okay, yeah. Just so we're all clear, the person you're worshiping and following was the guy we killed as an embarrassment to everybody on the cross. Okay, we're good. It's interesting, though. The title given to them, Christians, people who follow Christ, perhaps even slaves of Christ in this context, people associated with Christ, his life, his kingdom, his, his lordship. We have examples of this. So Herod, people who followed Herod and were associated with him tightly, were called Herodians. Now Christ, king, Christians, the king's people. It's interesting that as these people learned and lived in community together, that the people around them thought the best way to label them was these people are the ones who follow Christ. You and I are in a situation where we live in a a confusing, swirling context of competing ideas and allegiances and lifestyles. And and some of us come out of, of bad habits and, and bad habitual pasts. Other of us are, are just kind of confused with an onslaught. Others are just in sticky situations. Other of us have bad habits that have just plagued us for years. And all of us have to learn, what does it mean to say that Jesus is Lord? What does it mean to live like that? To give our allegiance and our obedience to Him? What does it mean to read Matthew 5-7, through the Sermon on the Mount, and to be that person? 
Can you imagine? I mean, just a thought experiment. If someone objectively was to watch your life, watch the way you lived, the way you spoke, the way you related to people, then objectively read the Gospels, Jesus' teachings, and decided the best way to talk about the kind of person you are. It seems like this person just swallowed Jesus' teachings. This is the best way to describe him. That's really the best way to explain the way he's living. What would it look like for, for people in Sugarland to have lives defined by this guy in Palestine 2,000 years ago who taught some very specific things about God and love, forgiveness, prayer, worship. We're called to to figure out what does it what does it mean for our lives? What are the implications? And there's no easy answers. There's no sometimes there's there's not even really clear answers. We work through it together. We struggle as a community. We struggle over time. But more and more and more as we worship, as we have our eyes and minds centered around Him, we come to know what it means for us to say He is our Lord, Lord of all, the one who's brought peace and redemption and healing. And then not only that, but they go. These guys started a church in Antioch. The Antioch church is going to start tons of churches. They're going to send money to places that are in need. They're going to join God on his mission. It's interesting in this story, these two chapters, all of the divine intervention, you have angels, you have the spirit speaking, you have visions, you have these things happening at the same time so they work out the way they work out. And yet God still consistently uses human messengers. Think about this. Why doesn't God explain to Cornelius what's happening in the vision? Could have saved everyone some travel time. Could have saved Peter some awkward conversations in Jerusalem. So the vision comes to Cornelius. Here I am, Lord. Instead of saying, go get Peter, why, not, why doesn't the vision just say, hey, here's the deal. Jesus is Lord, you believe, repent, get baptized, find your life in him. God seems, this is his kind of MO as he works the gospel through creation. He does it through human beings. Who are themselves not perfect. Who themselves are trying to learn and figure out what it means. 1 Corinthians 5 would say that, that, that there are people around you. I mean, the lesson I think to take away from the story is is that people who are far from God, and you might imagine, not be able to imagine, would be able to come to God, you should be pursuing and going after. People you don't like, people you don't trust, people you are suspicious and hostile towards. I think the real lesson for us, though, is a step backwards. Because I think, for a lot of us, myself included, we don't really even share the gospel with people we like. <laughs> so that's like varsity level. Once we get this down, then we can go after the people that we, we don't like, that we are at odds with naturally. So 1 Corinthians 5 would say that, that God wants to speak to people, but you're his ambassador, you're his mouthpiece. So God is speaking through you. So there are people in your life right now whom God wants to show up to and say, come get peace, come get life, come get wholeness, come get healing. And he wants to use you to do it. He wants you to walk over there. He wants you to have sweat on your palms and be nervous about it. He wants you to say a few words. He wants you to pray. And you might pray, God, show up in a vision. Miraculously change this person. God said, no, I want you to go over there. I mean, do we go? Do we live on mission? Have we adopted this? This call to go out and to share the good news? 
Sharing the good news is not just being polite and being nice and being a kind person and being friendly. I mean, surely it is that, but it's much more than that. At some point, it, it's Christ-centered. At some point, it's a, a proclaiming, a, a, a preaching. It's a, here's the message, here's the truth, here's the happenings of, of what has occurred to Jesus. He's died, he's resurrected. He's calling all men to find life in him. And I wonder if we, we, we've developed that heart, we've developed that impulse, we've developed that, that urgency that you have here. So as we continue as a church and as individuals to, to try to work out what does it mean, what, are, what do these truths mean for our lives? I think we, we take cues from the early church in submitting ourselves and, and finding our lives defined by him. And then also in having our assumptions and challenges and lives continually pushed out toward others to share the gospel with them, to tell them about what Jesus has done and is doing through the Spirit. Let's pray together. Father, we love you and we thank you for your scriptures. We thank you for what you have done in the past in through the church for what you are continuing to do. We ask that you would open up our eyes to how you're moving in us, through us, and around us. That we would be faithful to your call. Um, that we would submit ourselves to you and your commands. Um, that we would be people defined by Christ, by his life, his teachings. And that we would be people who go share. And not just to the people who are convenient to us, people who we understand and get along with, but would go share to those who are far off, who are voiceless, who are outcast, who are hated and persecuted against. Then those people would hear God saying, what, what I've called clean, you, you don't call unclean. And we would tear down barriers and walls for the glory of, of your name and of the gospel. We love you, Father. It's in the power and the name and the authority of Jesus that all God's people prayed. Amen.